My sense tonight before we started was that God wanted to give us a big hug. And that's kind of soppy. And maybe it's just because it's so miserable and cold out there, but coming in here it was warm. But I think it's more than that. I think it's about us coming together here like family. And it's really precious. And I, I just <coughs> felt a sense of God's presence and the safety of that for us. And it's just lovely because like one of my best friends up here playing and one of my best wives up here <laughs> playing. <laughs> it's just, thank you, Judy. Thank you, Alan. Um, it's, it's really, it's, it's awesome. It's, a, it's, it's, it's such a privilege to be part of leading this. And uh, I'm just in a really good place with it. So we are moving on in the, the story of David. Last week we saw David anointed as king in Hebron. Uh, this week we're looking at Jerusalem, um, at the whole of Israel. So I want to start with a reading from 2 Samuel chapter 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. Amen. That was David's, kind of at this point in his life, kind of final victory, the coming together of all that God had promised uh, in, in Israel, the coming together of, of one nation under David. David had waited a long time for that to happen. And I have a couple of questions for us to think about as I kind of teach through some of this. The first is this, what is it like to wait What's it like to undergo a period of waiting and preparation before you can be appointed, before you can take up a certain role or task? You see, David had been anointed now three times as king. Firstly, as a, a young, as a boy, he was anointed by Samuel while, while Saul was still king. And then after Saul was killed... David was anointed at Hebron by the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe that he belonged to. Now, this gets really complicated and it's really hard for us to get our heads around because it's almost like we see them as synonymous, Judah and Israel, and what was the difference anyway? So Judah is the tribe that, for whatever reason, and maybe one day we'll get around to teaching why, but just take it from me, Jacob 
decided should have dominion, should have kind of power over the other tribes. Jacob, who's the son of Isaac. Jacob, who's the grandson of Abraham. Jacob, who's the father of Joseph with the fancy coat. And the 11 brothers, uh, one of whom was Judah. So Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. You follow me so far? And Jacob said, Judah, you're going to have the kind of the most important role. You're going to have dominion over the other 11 tribes. So Judah always had this kind of stand-alone role amongst the tribes. Judah is also the tribe that Jesus came from. So that's Jesus' lineage. That's part of his heritage. In fact, it was the tribe that most of the kings came from. More than that even, it was the tribe that most of the Old Testament prophets and writers came from. They were from almost exclusively from the tribe of Judah. Isaiah and Ezekiel and Nehemiah and all these dudes were all from Judah. It was the largest and arguably the most important of the tribes. So you know that song we sing, You're the Lion of Judah? Yeah, we sing that sometimes. Now you know what it means. Now you know why. Jesus is seen as the Lion of Judah. That was the tribe that he belonged to. So you know a wee bit more about it when you're singing it. And I think that's always a good thing. So often we tend to just sing things, blase, without really thinking about what they mean. Why do we sing these kind of things? So David became king of Judah in Hebron after Saul was killed. But the rest of Israel did not recognize him as their king. They made Ish-bosheth king. Ish-bosheth which is sort of a tongue twister, was Saul's son. And he was uh, one of the Israelites. The tribes of Saul, the tribe of Judah, the house of Saul, and David's people, the house of David, they went to war. So there's like seven years of the house of Saul and the house of David at war with one another. And then Ishbosheth was murdered in cold blood while he was sleeping in his bedroom by a couple of his own, his own men. And they then brought Ishbosheth's head to David. And I guess they were expecting some kind of reward. I guess they thought David would be pleased with them. David was thoroughly unimpressed. And like the Amalekite who had killed Saul and brought that news to David, he had the two men killed. You see, this is the heart of David. This tells us something about the character of the man. His heart was not bloodthirsty. It wasn't ambitious. It didn't delight even when his enemies were defeated. You see, he is a man who respects what is right. He is a man who does what is honourable. The expectation, I think, would be that the person who killed David's enemy would then become David's ally. But David doesn't see it like that. Because first and foremost, David honours God. He recognises that Saul is God's anointed. Whether Saul was right or wrong, whether he was a good king or not, that's irrelevant to David. God had anointed him. Let's read the story in, in 2 Samuel 4. So this is just before the story that I've told you. This is what happened. Now, Rechab and Banna, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, set out for the house of Ish-bosheth. And they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Banna slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. 
After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they travelled all night by the way of Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. David answered Rechab and his brother Banner, the sons of Rimon the Birthright. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. That's the kind of man that David was. I love that picture. I love that story. Like they think they're going to have David's favour. It's kind of like, uh, like a scene at a casino or something. Like Goodfellas. Like David is just not having any other nonsense. He's not putting up with it. And David calls Ish-bosheth innocent. He holds him in a place of honour. Ish-bosheth was Saul's son. He was the best, he was David's best friend, Jonathan's brother. Even though the house of David and the house of Saul were at war, I believe that David was not interested in victory at any price. More than that, I think David had faith in God to fulfill the promise that God had made. That God would fulfill it. He didn't have to do anything to bring it about. He didn't need to force it. He didn't need to orchestrate it, manipulate the situation. God would carry out his will. And all David had to do was be faithful to God. David was called to be faithful to God. It's God who did it. It's God who does these things. So now David is anointed for the third time. And this time, it's king over all of Israel. A kingdom united and led by this man who first and foremost has God's hand on him, guiding him. A man whose heart is for God's will to be done and for God's glory to be revealed. The time is right. David is ready. And after maybe 20 years, you see, nobody is very sure how old David was when Samuel anointed him, when Samuel brought him in from the fields where he'd been tending the sheep and he anointed him. Estimates range from maybe he was only eight to maybe he was 15. I think probably he'd be below the age of adulthood in their culture, um, but not by much. So in Judaism, you have your bar mitzvah when you're 12 and that kind of brings you into adulthood. And it makes sense to me that Jesse would have brought all his sons who were of age before Samuel to be considered but David wasn't of age yet David was still a boy but as he's, he's the youngest son I imagine he's not much below the second youngest son if you've had so many in quick succession I guess you know we have a big gap between whoever was the penultimate and then David so I think probably he's, he's coming on 12 when that happened I think it's reasonable to assume that plus 
it does say that, well, he was a shepherd boy. He had wrestled bears and lions. And I guess, well, probably at 11, you're too young to be doing that. But there's a difference between 8 and, and 11, you know, maybe coming on 12. Maybe. It all seems a little bit outlandish. I'm guessing maybe small bears. I don't know. Um, seems terrifying to me. But we've got that kind of age. At this point, though, at the age of 30, David is ready to rule. He's ready to rule Judah and Israel. He's ready to lead that united kingdom. Now, that united kingdom would only last until the reign of his grandson, Rehoboam. But under David's rule, and then under Solomon, David's son's rule, Israel would see this unprecedented blessing and success as God's chosen people. And then it all goes wrong when Rehoboam comes on the scene. The ten northern tribes under the leadership of Jeroboam from the tribe of Ephraim split from the house of David to create the northern kingdom in Samaria. The book of Kings is uncompromising in its low opinion of its larger and richer neighbour to the north and understands its conquest by Assyria as divine retribution for the kingdom's return to idolatry. So you've got Judah in the south which remains faithful to God and these northern tribes which split away under Rehoboam, but they're conquered and they become enemies. Most of the focus then for the rest of the Old Testament is on the, the southern part of Israel, Judah. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they're the two that remain loyal to the house of David. These tribes formed the kingdom of Judah, which existed until Judah was conquered by Babylon. So that's like way further on when the Babylonians come and they, they sack Jerusalem. <clears throat> and they take the ark and all, all that, right? You, you know that? Are you following me here? I, I'm sorry, this is like a bit of a history lesson. But I, I find it really fascinating. <clears throat> and I find it helpful that we have a sort of framework in which we understand the, the narrative of what's going on. Um, and really the rest of that Old Testament story follows that southern kingdom of Judah. I think it's really important that we kind of get a handle on it. Anyway, I was asking you earlier at the start of that history lesson. I was asking you what it's like to wait. To wait while you're being prepared, while you're being trained, maybe educated. Because I think that's what was happening to David. From his first anointing by Samuel at that time, Samuel was God's representative. So it's valid to say that David was anointed by God as maybe an 11-year-old. And then even at Hebron, where he's anointed by his tribe, his people, to this next stage where he's being anointed by all the elders who finally recognise God's call on David. David had spent that time waiting and learning. We all have to do that. Even Jesus had that experience. Although he was born to be saviour, although he was born fully man and fully God. Mary and Joseph knew that and the angels knew that and Anna and Simeon knew that and the Magi knew that. Um, that's, this is what's called a teaser. We're just about to go into Advent in a few weeks' time so this is the introduction to some of the characters we'll learn about through December. Uh, they knew that Jesus was born to be saviour but Jesus still had to learn and train and be educated. I'm firmly of that belief that Jesus was trained formally. 
in human terms to be a rabbi. Otherwise, to be honest, I don't see any way that somebody would have referred to him as rabbi. That title was hugely respected and it wasn't just given away banded about willy-nilly. There's no way he would just have been called rabbi out of nowhere. You had to earn that designation. Jesus had to go through all the training that was required, all the following of another rabbi, <coughs> before he would be given that designation. And then he had to go through the temptation in the wilderness, 40 days of fasting culminating in facing the accuser, Satan, who tested him and tempted him. Jesus had to, Jesus had to go through that to be prepared emotionally and spiritually for the ministry he was about to undertake. Jesus had 30 years of preparation for three years of ministry. In our lives, we have to go through similar periods of waiting, times of preparation. We need to be made ready for the tasks set before us. Now imagine if one day you just decided that you'd like to be a brain surgeon. So you got given a scalpel, a scalpel, and told, just carry on, just on you go, undertake an operation, carry on an operation. No matter what your qualities were, no matter your intelligence, your calm persona, your steady hand, you might have all the qualities of a surgeon, but without the qualifications, you might as well be a lumberjack than a brain surgeon. I know, I'm sure, being a lumberjack requires a great deal of training and preparation too, it was just it was a lazy comparison. When I was at Bible College, the first time around, so it's like way back, oh, it's nearly 30 years because I'm so old getting. I was only 20 when I started at Bible College the first time around, and I had no idea what I was going to do with a degree in theology. I had no idea what I would apply the training I was doing to. No idea what I'd do with the experience I was gaining. I was young. And particularly then, when you're young and at Bible College, you get kind of pushed in one of two directions. You can either become a youth worker, and I had absolutely no desire to be a youth worker, because young people are terrifying, or you can become a missionary. And I had absolutely no desire to be a missionary, because frankly, foreign countries are terrifying. So I, I really didn't know that's what I thought being a missionary was then. <laughs> no intentions of doing that. I really, I didn't know what I was doing with the degree that I was working towards. I had no desire for youth work or foreign mission. And I had no sense of God's call to either of those roles. I suppose, thinking about it, all I really felt that I wanted to do or thought I might do or felt some sense of call or, or at least association with was this, was, was being a pastor. Even then, I love talking one-to-one -one with people, sitting down over coffee and, and listening to them and, and talking to them. And I love talking to large groups of people. I wanted to, to pastor people and I wanted to teach and I wanted to preach. I wanted to lead a church. But how could I? 21, 22, 23. How could I? who at that time was unmarried, had no kids, I'd never had a proper job, I'd never paid taxes, 
I'd never experienced loss or success. I'd never paid a mortgage or a rent. Never owned a car. How could I pastor a church? The question that I had, in a nutshell, was why would a working man or woman, could be a working woman, give me any respect or regard? Why would they listen to me? I know that sounds a bit sexy. Why would a man listen to me? Uh, I'm sorry, but that was the question. That was, that was the doubt that I had. How would a working man, why would he come and talk to me about his life when I had no sense of the life that he had? How could I empathise when I had so little life experience? So God <coughs> led me away from Bible College. And then I got married and we had children and I worked as a prison officer and I bought a house and a car and I paid taxes and I got some life experience. The sense of God's call though never left me. I said at the time I was putting it on a back burner in my life. And then about seven years after I left Bible College, I felt that sense of God's call begin to bubble up inside me again. A sense of calling. And I saw a job in this Scotsman and I applied and I got it because I believed God was calling me to it. And I remember even saying as much in the interview, that's not typically something you would say in an interview. But I sensed that. It was a a job within a Christian organisation, so maybe it wasn't entirely inappropriate, but it's still, it was, it's quite a bold thing to say. I think God might be calling me to this job. It's a bit of a trump card, really, isn't it? <laughs> and I became the field worker for the Grass Market Mission, and I learned even more about life. And I learned about poverty. And I learned about need and purpose and value. And I learned about shame and reconciliation and forgiveness and brokenness and guilt and healing. And then God fulfilled that call he placed on me when he brought me into pastoral ministry in St. John's. And I couldn't have done it without the experiences and understanding that I had gained, without the waiting, without the time spent learning. I'll tell you a wee story that <clears throat> actually I, I haven't told very many people. I'm getting to a point now where I'm scared that I'm running out of stories so I have to try and make new stories. This is an old story. This, is, this happened to me, I'd only been a Christian for a few weeks, maybe a couple of months and I was asked at St John's on a Sunday night to give my testimony and, and tell my story about how I'd become a Christian and I think it was the following week, might have been the Monday morning. I was walking down the high street and I met this old guy who had been at the church and I don't even remember his name. He was old then and he's, he's probably dead. I should have probably asked some people who might have remembered him. There's probably some folks around St John's who might know who I'm talking about. He was an old guy, there weren't that many. It was a much, much smaller church then. And he stopped me in the street and he said, oh David, that was great last night. Really enjoyed what you had to say. I said, oh, thanks very much. Basking in the glory of the first <laughs> seeds of success. So, so that was really good. And he said, with a kind of smile on his face, and a kind of wee, but he said, maybe one day you'll be the pastor. And we laughed. Because it was impossible. I was only 19. 
St. John's had never had a pastor. There was never any hope of them calling a pastor. It was utterly ridiculous. That just because I had told my story in five minutes on the Sunday, <laughs> maybe one day you'll be the pastor, son. There I am, 19 years later. And I was ordained <laughs> to be a pastor in St. John's. Now, I'd love to say, oh, maybe that was prophetic. I don't think he would even have had a sense of prophetic. I think it's just a passing comment. But it stuck. Well, sort of. It's not like I was holding on to that, but it's just funny. Waiting for God. Waiting for God to fulfill the call that he's placed on you, the promises he's made for you, is not something that has to be passive. Because this is not nothing. If you're in a period now of waiting... And you're not sure what God is calling you to. You're not sure what he's got for you. You're not sure when that will be fulfilled. Maybe he's told you some things. He's given you a passion. Maybe you've got a sense of calling. The thing that you're really keen on. The thing that you really desire. The place you want to be. The stuff you want to be doing. And you're thinking, when? When is that going to happen? This period of waiting does not have to be passive. It's not nothing. Perhaps God is preparing you. Now, in your life, training you, investing in you. God is moulding and shaping you for his purposes. And what are they? What are God's purposes for you? This is cool, I think. I know what God's purposes are for you. At least I know in part. I know what they are. Because they are ultimately... And most importantly, the same for every one of us. They were the same even for David. Because David was king, but that being king was secondary to him. God's call on me was to be a pastor, but that is secondary to what God's call really is on my life. You see, David was primarily something else. David was first and foremost called to the same thing that we are all called to. And it doesn't matter if you're a king or a pastor or a surgeon or a lumberjack. We are all called to the same thing. We are all called to be worshippers in the presence of God. That's what God is calling you to before anything else. That's who you are. You are a worshipper in the house of the Lord. I think that's fantastic. I love that. And as we grow and learn in our faith, God is preparing us for that job first and foremost. That's who we are. That's your identity if you're a follower of Jesus. You are first and foremost a worshipper in the presence of God. You're a worshipper in the house of God. Every sermon topic in this series comes with a psalm. And I'm going to finish up tonight just by reading the psalm that I kind of ascribed to this topic. It's not even written by David. The psalm I'm going to read was written by the, the sons of Korah. But it speaks of God's people in God's presence, worshipping him. And it's a psalm I want us to, to listen to and to take on board as the people that God is moulding us to be. The people first and foremost God wants us to be. Our characters and our hearts and our desire. Psalm 84 <clears throat> how lovely is your dwelling place Lord Almighty my soul 
yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are forever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favour on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does he withhold from those whose way of life is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are moulding and shaping each one of us. That you are preparing us, investing in us, training us, educating us, revealing yourself to us day by day, deeper and deeper, that we might know you more, that we might worship you in truth, in spirit, in honesty, that we might tell others who you are, that we might give more of our lives over to you. Father, I pray that you would encourage us tonight, that you would make us brave to give more to you, that you would give us the courage that puts you first and our own ambition second, that seeks your will and your glory before our own honour. Father, I pray for each one of us tonight that you would have your way with us and that you would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>